0: Letting. Great. So welcome, everybody. And before I introduce our speaker, just to say that um, there is a handout in chat, which it would be great if people could download. So you should just see the link there and press on that and you should have what you need. I hope that's working OK. Good. So. Welcome um, to the 11th meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. It's my very great p- pleasure to introduce Alexander P.D. Morolatos, who is professor emeritus in philosophy and in classics at the University of Texas at Austin, where in 1967 he founded and for 20 years directed the joint classics philosophy graduate program in ancient philosophy. He's the author of the groundbreaking The Root of Parmenides, 1970, second edition, 2008, and editor of the Presocratics, a collection of critical essays, 1974, second edition, 1993. A new book has just appeared, which is a collection of his articles entitled After Parmenides. He received all his academic degrees from Yale University, PhD 1964, and has been awarded two honorary doctorates in his native Greece, from the University of Athens in 1994 and the University of Crete in 2017. Professor Muralatos's paper this evening is entitled "Parmenides of Elea and Xenophanes of Colophon: The Conceptually Deeper Connections." Please join me in welcoming Professor Muralatos.
1: Well, thank you very much uh, President Bob Stern for your kind introduction, but let me also thank you uh, as I also thank director Michael Hannon, editor Kai Longworth and the Aristotelian Society collectively for you, you all as we say in Texas, giving me the distinct honor and rare delight of addressing a session of this celebrated academic body. For months, I have been in correspondence with Holly de las Casas about scheduling and organizational issues, and I consider myself indebted to you, Holly, for your quick help and advice. For help with the technical functions of today's Zoom session, my thanks go not only to Holly and to her associate, Lawrence Slater, but also to two colleagues at the University of Texas at Austin, Albert Fest of the Department of Philosophy, and Emily Fundling of our Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. In Texas, this is the time of the year when heavy loads of tree pollen and mold from various plants cause allergies and problems of voice hoarseness. So standing by today is my dear friend Spiros Moskonas of the University of Athens, who, very kindly accepted my begging to take over the reading of my talk if I should come close to losing my voice. The photo you see as background is not from Athens and certainly not from Texas. As many of you recognize, it is the Porta Rossa of the archaeological site of Velea or Roman Velia in Campania, Italy which in antiquity was the home city of both Parmenides and Zeno of Elea. The city wall is a fourth century BCE structure. So the gate is definitely not the gate where Parmenides received his philosophical briefing by an unidentified goddess. But even archeologists, let alone visitors to this fabulous site, have found it difficult to resist the association. And now I turn to my talk. In the interpretation of Parmenides of Alea, there's a certain Vulgate, one widely represented in in general histories of philosophy, and indeed assumed by philosophers broadly. The metaphysical tenor and thrust of the philosophy of Parmenides, according to this Vulgate, is holistic monism. All things are one, in Greek, hentopan. As it may be recalled, Parmenides reached his metaphysical conclusions by initially reflecting on the language of to me on or to uk on, either of which may be translated as what is not, or not being, or not being. Ascribing that initial philosophical move to Parmenides is certainly beyond dispute. The Vulgate, however, adds that he must also have reflected on the language of different, hetero, and other, allo, and then she proceeded to draw powerful metaphysical inferences in the following way. If with respect to some A and some B were to hold that A is different from or other than B or vice versa, then we're committed to holding that A is not B and B is not A. But if grasping not being is inherently impossible, it should likewise count as impossible that we should conceive more narrowly of A's not being B, or of B's not being A. Once distinctions of any sort are logically disallowed, the metaphysical conclusion seems inevitable. Hent upon, all things are one. The epistemological corollary of holistic monism is that the world humans experience, fraught as it is with plurality and pervasively splintered by distinctions, is ultimately and fundamentally an illusion. As is well known, Parmenides presented his philosophy in the form of a poem, in epic style, in two parts, Aletheia, reality or truth, and in modern times often with the initial T capitalized, and Doxai, Broton, opinions of mortals, standardly referred to by scholars as Doxa, with the initial D often capitalized. Many of the modern interpretations of Parmenides that conform to the Vulgate concentrate on truth and then pay scant attention to the details of Doxa. Very striking about the second part of Parmenides' poem, nonetheless, especially once its nearly 50 lines are supplemented by pertinent testimonia from later sources, is Doxa's rich content of breakthrough scientific discoveries. ...of the middle or early middle decades of the 5th century BCE, and possibly even earlier. This content includes the realization that the moon is illuminated by the sun, that the earth has spherical shape... ...and that the morning star and the evening star are the same luminary, therefore a wandering star, a planet. Interpreters who adhere to the Vulgate are led almost inevitably to proposing an exempli gratia or concessive or ironic rationale for the length of Doxa and for its riches in scientific content. Doxa's message accordingly is even human science at its best is an illusion. Also assumed by advocates of the Vulgate is that the discoveries instance in Doxa could not have been made by metaphysician Parmenides they ought to be attributed to scientifically minded predecessors of his, the prime candidates being Pythagoras of Samos, or some area students or followers of the latter. The Vulgate unmistakably has its origins in Plato. At the Dialogue Parmenides, section 128b, the Platonic Socrates, presented by Plato as interrogating all Parmenides, states. You assert in your poem that all is one. And in the dialogue of the sophists, the Iliatic stranger, now cast by Plato as a spokesman for Parmenides, offers this historical hermeneutic comment, and that's item H1 in your handout. I hope you see the text from Sophist. Uh, this one's short enough, I'll read it. And our own Iliatic tribe, having started from Xenophanes, and even earlier proceeding the argumentation in this way that the things collectively spoken of as the all are a single thing. Aristotle adopts this Platonic glossing of Parmenides' metaphysical position, as is evident at Metaphysics 986 B twenty-seven and following, where we have a compendious account of Parmenides' philosophy. Moreover, just a few lines earlier. Aristotle presents Xenophanes as, quote, the first to have advocated monism, protos genesis, unquote. And he reports that Parmenides, quote, is said to have been a pupil of, and the reference is to Xenophanes. Given the twin Plato and Aristotle authority, the view of an Iliadic school or Iliadic succession comprising Xenophanes, Parmenides, Zeno and Melissus soon took hold in the post Aristotelian tradition, especially after it was reinforced and propagated by the peripatetic treatise De Melisso Xenophane Gorgia, usually abbreviated MXG, and I've used that abbreviation myself. It's quite significant in this connection that after the MXG, Xenophanes gets at least 20 attestations as Iliatic philosopher from Cicero all the way to Albertus Magnus. In the scholarship of at least the first half of the 20th century, Xenophanes in his Eliettaist identity is hermeneutically disadvantaged in the same way Parmenides' doxa has been disadvantaged by prevalence of the Parmenides Vulgate. For if the second part of Parmenides' poem is merely an exempli gratia display of doctrines that are not being put forward by the poem's author, there is lesser motivation for expending effort in reconstructing the poem's second part. Correspondingly, if Xenophanes is a proto Parmenides whose monism was simply focused on the one God, the the details of Xenophanes' physical doctrine are downgraded as of lesser interest. With respect to Parmenides, the hermeneutic option of downgrading the significance of the elements of scientific knowledge in the Doxa, supposedly because of Pythagorean anticipation, was decisively undercut in one of the breakthrough moments of 20th century scholarship. Walter Borkelitz's Weisheit und Wissenschaft, Studien zu Pythagoras Philolaus on Plato that appeared in 1962, and has gone through a number of later editions and a translation in English. Burkert demonstrated that Pythagoras of Samos, sixth century BCE, was not what late ancient sources portray him to have been, namely a scientific genius who quite on his own made fundamental breakthrough discoveries in astronomy and mathematics. Rather, as Burkert shows, he was a mystic and, quote, shaman-like, unquote, figure who preached the doctrine of soul transmigration and promoted and led a special purificatory way of life. Even those of his early 5th century successors who were classed in the ancient tradition as mathematicoi appear to have pursued primarily not mathematics proper, but arithmological mysticism. The first Pythagorean figure for whom we have good evidence of interest as well as of accomplishment in the combination of mathematics, astronomy, and speculative cosmology that may properly count as Pythagorean is Philolaus of Croton, whose writings post state those not only of Parmenides, but even of Anaxagoras, Elea, and Empedocles. This dethroning of Pythagoras has opened up the possibility of viewing the development of science in the sixth through fifth centuries BCE in a new light, not as the miraculous outcome of endeavors by a protus hevretis, a first discoverer, that is Pythagoras, but rather as a gradual process in which different figures and in various contexts, including Parmenides in his doxa, and as I'll personally argue, even Xenophanes played a part. And almost in parallel to this revamping of the history of science in the first century, the Parmenides Vulgate and the cognitive narrative of the Iliadic succession are no longer dominantly favored among scholars. As it has often been pointed out, the formula, Hem to pan, all things are one, is conspicuously absent in the Parmenides fragments. What comes closest to it in Parmenides' poem, are the lines that you have in the handout H2? I'll quote Nor was it at some time past, nor will it be, since it is now all of it together. One. Oh, sorry. All of it together, one. head. hen. All of it a single whole. Cohesive. Or continue. The contrast between the two formulations, Parmenidean and Platonic Aristotelian, uh, the sound that you heard a moment ago is like uh, my, my paper page has fo- fallen down. So make sure that it's in the proper pagination. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, I have a full page now. Uh, the contrast between the two formulations, Parmenidean and Platonic Aristotelian, is glaring. Whereas in Plato Aristotle, the subject is insistently the all, Plato to pan Aristotle tapanta. In Parmenides, the pronoun pan does not bear the article, and when it occurs, it functions as part of a compound grammatical predicate, all of it together one. Indeed, naming the subject as the all appears to be studiously avoided throughout the poem. Rather, the subject at issue is either pointedly suppressed or is schematically referred to as to eon, what is or whatever is, both in the text just cited and in all of Parmenides' deductions. Accordingly, in the second half of the 20th century, several Parmenides' interpretations have been put forward that read the Parmenidean deductions of the nature of Toeon, what is, distributively. Not as compelling us to assume that these deductions envisage a single, all encompassing, and undifferentiated entity, Pan the all, or Tohen, the one, but rather as putting forward criteria for what qualifies as Toeon, what is, or delineating the bounds or boundaries or limits within which we are to seek to find it. And the language of seeking to find is suggested by the language of Hodoi Tezisi's roots of inquiry. Uh, The criteria of limits are expressly stated and argued for in the main argument of uh, fragment B8 in truth. And now look at uh, handout H3, uh, not subject to being born or to perishing of a single kind, sui so generis, not subject to division, all of it continues cohesive, immobile, not subject to motion, complete or fully realizing, not subject to or admitting of development or actualization. As the Parmenides Vulgate sees being accepted as the standard scholarly account, uh, sorry, as the standard scholarly accounts of Xenophanes correspondingly and increasingly have approached with reserve the ancient reports that Xenophanes was the teacher of Parmenides and founder of the Iliatic school. It is not my main concern in this presentation either to rehabilitate the ancient Eleatization of Xenophanes or to attempt further to undermine it. Rather, what I shall put forward for consideration is evidence that beyond the simplistic association, one God, one being of the Iliathized Xenophanes and beyond the Parmenides vulgar, there are a number of philosophically captivating conceptual affinities in the philosophies of these two pre-Socratics. Surprisingly, these affinities have not been fully pondered and appreciated. At the very least, they provide some independent support for the teacher pupil link, but more importantly, they enhance our insight into the thought of each of these figures, not only of Xenophanes, but of Parmenides as well. So that we may explore these deeper connections between the two pre-Socratics and interpretative Synopsis of the essentials of Xenophanes' philosophy is obviously in order, especially in as much as Xenophanes is not so widely studied among uh, specialists in ancient philosophy as Parmenides is. Drawing on my own studies of the topic over the last two decades, uh, the next 20 or so minutes of my presentation aim to provide such an interpretive synopsis. Distinctive and often dwelled upon in accounts of presocratic philosophy is Anopheles's fierce critique of traditional beliefs about gods, those worshiped by the Greeks in the first instance, but also gods worshiped by non-Greeks. His phrasing hints of outrage at the way in which poets, and in particular Homer and Hesiod, attribute to the gods acts of deceit, thievery and adultery. Skrat's fragment B1, same as Laxmos D and B2, same as Laxmos D9. And so uh, for the sake of brevity, from here on, I take the liberty uh, of citing only the older and more familiar Diekrats numbering of the fragments. Xenophanes observes that what underlies the religious beliefs and practices, whether among Greeks or among peoples of the far north or deep Africa, is a penchant for anthropic bias and a motive of philautia, self-love, with a strong tinge of vanity. The latter two terms are not, to be sure, ones Xenophanes himself uses, but they accurately capture the outlook, the outlooks he deplores, and the behaviors and practices he censures. Significantly, he points up ethnic or racial bias in the various conceptions and depictions of the gods. Dielschonz B15, and he sarcastically comments that if animals could sculpt or paint, they would make the gods appear in the correspondingly respective ways, zoomorphic. That's Dielschonz B15. The deprecation of Velautia is also of note in Xenovtis's broader social critique. Vanity and self-promotion, he judges, was at the root of the social decline that ultimately led to the takeover of his home city of Colophon by the Medes, And out page four. They would go forth to the Agora wearing mantles, all purple, boastful, drenched with perfume. Vamity, or to borrow the psychologically more precise term that is used by Lax and Moss in their outline of the Xenophonus chapter and in the chapter section titles, self-projection is also what drives the cult of the athlete among Greeks. The wins by athletes in competitions in Olympia are in themselves of slight Civic Valley, B2, Smikron Harma. And yet the citizenry, the citizenry in each of the Greek polis, lionizes its Olympic champions and showers them with gifts and honors. In doing so, it projects irrationally, illegitimately, and vaingloriously upon itself the feats and fame of those individual athletes. Trivial as it feeds are in Xenophonis' so nice, Excuse me as I take a little bit of liquid. <clears throat> With respect to the material constituents of the universe, Xenophonis is decidedly not a monist, but a dualist. His two fundamental material entities are earth and water. Underwater, he includes all sorts of vapor stuff, including mist and clouds, but he also includes fiery stuff, lightning, light, and fire itself. The two cosmic constituents interpenetrate, of course, and mix locally to form compounds, including living things, B-29. In cosmographic terms, This takes place in relatively small regions, but there's an enormous single planar and roughly horizontal cosmic limit, pair that separates the two cosmic masses. B8, I'm sorry, B28, far from its being imagined as a yawning gap or a chasma, in some remote recondite, recondite region to recall the way Hesiod spoke of the limits of heaven and earth. The limits and he speaks of is utterly familiar and only present. The sharp separation between terrestrial ground, including the bottom of sea, lakes, and other bodies of water, and everything above ground. Most of the time, except when we're swimming or sailing, that single cosmic limit is visible at our feet, paraposim horatai. Below that, that limit, earth extends downwards at infinitum, es aperum. We have no preserved quotation which might give us the expected complement that the above ground domain of cosmic water also extends at infinitum, but the geometric logic of a single cosmic limit, together with the doctrine of Earth's ad infinitum stretch downwards, makes nearly inevitable the following two elaborations of Xenophanes' cosmology. One, the Earth's upper surface must also be conceived as spreading ad infinitum. Two, the realm of superterrestrial water should also be assumed to extend ad infinitum Both in altitude and in lateral spread. Despite his determined critique of traditional religious belief, Xenophis appears to accede to belief in the existence of plural gods as beings of superhuman power and indefinitely extended longevity. Purge, of course, of moral deformities. But most importantly, he posits the existence of a single deity, V23, which compared both to all gods and all human human beings is greatest, Megistos, very much in line with the critique of traditional conceptions of the divine and specifically his critique of anthropism, Xenophanes adds, quote, not in any way similar to mortals, either in bodily frame, demos, or in manner of thought, The supreme deity's awareness of things is absolutely holistic. The deity, in other words, simultaneously sees and hears everything that occurs in the universe, in all directions, at any one time. Moreover, its awareness of occurrences is pan-historical of all that has happened, all that is going on currently, and all that will ever happen, B24. Except for an isolated remark in a polemical context in which Xenophanes indulges the language of mortals, we find notable absence in the Xenophanes texts about a single deity of any theme of creationism, providence, or divine interventionism. Within the universe that extends to infinity in all three dimensions, the one God, quote, always remains at rest in the same position not at all moving, nor is it fitting to him to travel elsewhere at one time or another." Unquote. 26 And yet, even as an office's deity is always addressed, it has the power, quote, far from exercising any toil or effort to make all things quiver, cradine, and it does so simply and directly by mind's thought no frenzy. p25 the phrase no frenzy" transparently refers to what we call mental causation healthy humans have the capacity to focus minds attention on something at will to recall a memory to envisage a plan to resolve to proceed in one way or another and so on and so forth with purely mental undertakings other projects require use of limbs or tools or collaboration with other humans. But within the special realm of mental causation, human power is sovereign and unlimited. What we can accomplish only within that circumscribed circumscribe realm of our own nose and friend, Xenophanes' deity can accomplish with effects beyond its nose and its friend and does so at universal rates. Things are made to quiver. Psychokinetically, kinetically directly through the deity's unique power. Beyond what has been said already in this synopsis about Earth as cosmic constituent, infinite spread and depth, it's been penetrated places by water and even by fire. There's nothing distinctly Xenophonian that needs to be added, but there is much to say about the second material constituent of his universe, water. Xenophonus's water, rather like Anaximenes' air, comes in a variety of states of and condensation. At one extreme, water can present itself as earth-like in solidity, as snow or as ice. In its most familiar guises, it is the inherently colorless and transparent fluid we drink, or that we feel as flowing over our limbs or over our whole body. And it's also the water we float we float upon in rivers, lakes, and the sea. But it's also present, but it also, it can also present itself as mist, fog, cloud, vapor, and also, as was pointed out earlier, as lightning, starlight, and sunlight. The case of lightning is especially suggested for offering. But it invites the inference that high measures of internal tension are lurking within water in its more rarefied states. And the tension may at times be quite literally expressed as lightning, either because of a sudden external blow of high elevation wind, or spontaneously. But in either case, because of heightened internal tension that is like that is likened to a fever or inflamed state. Pirusti. At this juncture, we note yet another philosophically fruitful modification of the views of Anaximenes or indeed of Anaximander or Thales. The received report suggests that the early material monism had fastened on the material constitution of things without identifying superordinate kinds and subordinate types or species of constituted things that are conspicuously prominent and of major importance in cosmology. By contrast, Sinopolis, in the course of speaking globally of the immense variety of things or phenomena that are suspended above the earth, meteora, identifies them, collects them under two generic types and subtypes, clouds, nephi, the normative singular being nephos, and small cloud formations, nephelia. The formula, this is actually, or in reality, a cloud must have appeared repeatedly in his physicalist or speculative physical reductive accounts, as may be inferred by the kai tutu that too, or this as well, in his explanation of the rainbow. What they called the understood goddess iris that too kai Tuto, is in reality or in nature perfect a cloud the same deep personalizing and physicalizing that is existence in the case of the minor goddess iris is applied more strikingly to helios the sun god to selene the moon goddess and doubtless apropos a large segment of the pantheon of divinities which the greeks had associated with astronomical and meteorological phenomena. Under the cosmic genus of cloud, Xenophanes collects in the first instance, and quite obviously, the very wide variety of what humans from most remote antiquity to his own time had recognized as clouds proper. It is relevant to notice in this connection that today's meteorologists distinguished and classify under the intermediate genera of cumulus Cirrus and Nimbus, at least 30 distinct species. A spectacularly diverse variety of forms of ordinary clouds. Only a small number of which had been named by the ancients obviously served to encourage Xenophanes to include under the highest genus of Nephos, special or non-ordinary cloud types. Thus, in addition to the rainbow, other forms of Viliacens the Dioscuri, what we call St. Elmo's Fire, shooting stars, comets, probably the Northern Lights, fixed stars, planets, as well as the moon and the sun, as beautifully, uh, beautifully laid out in Mos D28, D38, with the many cross-references to the A and B entries in Diels Kranz. The pattern of family resemblances between ordinary and unordinary clouds is obvious and intuitive. And in papers I published in 2002 and 2008, I have reviewed cases of suggestive transitional subtypes between ordinary and unordinary clouds that serve to extend Xenophonus' grand generalization. In the case of Lightning, we we have conspicuous evidence that some interior agitation of a cloud, let alone exterior agitation by strong high altitude wind, results in the emission of light and fire. Drawing on this phenomenon as clue, then an oftenest reason that in the case not only of lightning, but also of all non-ordinary clouds, there must be some internal agitation that produces a luminosity. Thus, in the case of St. Elmo's fire, his explanation is uh, this is h six in the handout. The things which on ships or their mess or rigging show up looking like stars are in reality small clouds, nephelia, that glow or emit light, paralampata, because of the special motion. The above testimonium from Aetius is supplemented by one in the same source. Which significantly bears the heading about comets, shooting stars, and dokides. The translation of Dokides in the singular nominative would be Dokis, remains undetermined. The most likely guess being special type of comet. But the wide scope of the phrasing is what is very telling. H7 in your hand hunt, hunt up. All things of this sort are either coalescences systemata, or sudden bursts kinemata, of clouds that are in an inflamed state epipromeno. Other testimonials speak of pyridia, tiny flares, which the non-ordinary clouds of theophanes either contain within themselves or can draw out, can draw out or, or somehow receive from the domain of superterrestrial vapors. This has motivated Lux, most and others to give a translation ignited for the perfect tense, perpiromenon. But usage shows that the verb perustai carries primarily the middle voice sense to be in a fever or inflamed state. I believe the evidence reviewed over the last several minutes strongly favors assuming that is an oftenest as cloud astrophysics the cause of steady and non-reflected luminosity is a certain agitation, a boyat kinesis in the vapor stuff that constitutes a cloud. The, course, the source, sorry, the source and the nature of that kinesis is not far to see. In all likelihood, it is that quivering motion which the supreme deity imparts to the universe. Remarkably for a thinker this early in the history of philosophy Xenophanes is the author of no fewer than five epistemological pronounces in B36 he declares his empiricism by stating preference for the things which the gods so forth so that mortals may view them with their eyes at B18 he proclaims there is no such thing is a revelation of the nature of things by the gods at some first in human history. Rather, mortals, as they keep searching or quote, as they pursue inquiry, unquote, in due course find something that is better, Aminon. Most famous is the third of his epistemological statements. I give its full translation, including plausible alternatives in handout H8. In this case, uh, I trust your ability of speed reading and I will not read it because of its length. and uh, perhaps it's already familiar to many of you. In a somewhat more upbeat tone, speaking either of his own claims or of those by others, he states, let these things be received, dedoxasto as appropriately similar a to what is true. B. 33. This curiously tempered satisfaction with the mother's standard of amenon, what is better, which stands out in V 18, gains significance when plays in Xenophonus' fifth epistemological remark. Handout uh, H. 9. If God had not created yellow honey, they mortals would say, that fig, figs are much sweeter, P38. Comparatives occur rather frequently in the verses of Xenophanes, and I've been inclined to argue that Xenophonus' epistemological position is characterized better as comparativism rather than as skepticism. With respect to any docus, there can be, and there will always be, one that is better, that we take the examples of better and sweeter and pair them with adjectives that uh, can be applied to the two Xenophonian material constituents, earth and water. We have at least the intimation of evidence that unlimited ranges are built into the cosmological fabric of Xenophonus' universe. Just as there is no absolutely sweet flavor and no conclusive explanation. It is also true that the universe itself, that in the universe itself, there is no absolutely deep, but only and always deeper, no high, but always higher, no fathers whether to the east, west, north or south, but always farther along in all directions of travel. Of course, between the up and the down, there's a single cosmic beta, a limit, that sharply separates them, namely the one we see by our fit, feet, sorry, the one we see by our feet. And even though the Zanopharian conception of a supreme deity was poignantly introduced in the comparison with the lesser greatness instant by Anthropoi as well as by the Theoi of Tradition, the exact measure of Megistos greatest applied to the Supreme Deity constitutes manifestly an absolute limit. It is logical to assume that all other properties and offices assigned to the supreme deity likewise represents an absolute limit vis-a-vis whatever the germane unlimited range might be. The antithesis of unlimited against limit, which becomes so important two generations later in the thought of Philaleos shows the first Hints of appearance in Xenophanes. I turn now to exploring those connections with Parmenides, which, as I have said earlier, have not been sufficiently attended to or even noticed. It is rather odd for any reader, but especially for those who accept the Parmenides Vulgate. That the scheme Parmenides disparages as one which does not offer pistis alethes, genuine opinion through greatness, through trust, should be specifically a dualistic scheme of night and light. Supporters of the Vulgate explain Parmenides' choice of dualism rather unconvincingly is simply a minimal pluralism of just two parmenides intended message accordingly would be that any pluralism of more than two would be a fortiori not acceptable curious it has not been sufficiently noticed that the parmenidean scheme of doxa shows a marked resemblance to the dualistic cosmology of earth and water in Xenophanes. in assessing the affinity between the two dualisms, the first half of the relevant project works straightforwardly. Armendes describes night, night of doxa, in the following terms, a body, demos, that is inimical, inimical to perception, adae, is thick texture and heavy, B.A. 59. The descriptions apply transparently to earth, whether speaking of earth stuff generally, or specifically apropos Xenophanes' earth. In the case of the other half, in the dualistic scheme, however, we seem at first not to have correspondence. (coughs) The opposite to earth in Xenophanes is water, whereas in Parmenides, the opposite to night is light, identified as the ethereal fire of flame. ...and then described as something gentle or mild, balmy, epion, and megalafront, greatly light in weight or in texture 852. Beyond this obvious disparity between the two dualisms, it is quite astonishing that in the case of Parmenides' Doxa... ...there is only a single mention of water, quote, Parmenides in his poem... Stigopoeia called the earth water rooter. Unquote. Hidatorizo. And yet, the line just quoted serves as clue to accounting for the seeming disparity between the Xenophanian and Parmenidean versions of dualism. The notion that the earth has its roots in water remind us that in Parmenides' scheme, the earth is already thought of as a distinct shaped body with celestial bodies circling it. There's no longer cosmic horizontal separation between the terrestrial and the superterrestrial domain. In Xenophones, the latter domain, as we saw, encompasses oceans, seas, lakes, rivers, mist, vapors, and ordinary clouds, but it also encompasses the grand variety of non-ordinary clouds that endogenously emit light. With a single cosmic limit of Xenophanes removed, Parmenides can distribute water to other cosmic regions, partly to the interior of the spherical earth to serve there as the place of the lattice rooting, partly to the surface of the earth and partly on the lower layers of the super-terrestrial domain. He can then concentrate his astrophysical explanations on the upper layers, the domain of, of what he calls fire or light. These upper layers are the same ones on which Enochnus had concentrated his project of astrometeorology. The younger cosmologist Parmenides called those regions fire and light. The older one, encouraged perhaps by Anaximenes had theorized that they are cloud-like, superfine, or sublimated formations of water. So it turns out that the difference between the two dualistic accounts is essentially verbal. A special yet quite elementary use of the third person of the verb to be is common in elocutionary acts whereby a person of relative authority corrects a mistaken notion by a learner or interlocutor. <coughs> For example, the child sees a dragon, but the parent reassures that what appeared threatening is an oddly shaped bush. Don Quixote sees fierce giants, but his squire tells him that what the Don is seeing is windmills. The is in such cases is often reinforced by adverbs such as actually really in fact only just growing out of the simple grammatical pattern are more sophisticated uses of the is of explanatory identity such as water is a chemical compound of hydrogen and oxygen in yet more sophisticated uses we have what today's philosophers might call inter-theoretic identity as in the sodium chloride molecule is an assembly of charged particles. Such scientific or philosophical uses of the is or explanatory identity come up often in the context of explanation or reduction of something which is empirically manifest to some more fundamental reality, as for instance, the reduction of biological processes to ones of electrochemistry. The use of is, which shortly before I refer to as common, is certainly one of the universals of ordinary language. The uses I call more sophisticated, make their appearance not of course with examples I cited moments ago, but already at the beginning of physics and astronomy in pre-classical Greece. In the root of Parmenides, uh, I argue that Parmenides' deduction of the fundamental properties of ton eon, what is or being, was inspired by reflection precisely on the speculative or explanatory use of the esti is of identity. Already in the original edition of the root, I had cited office B twenty eight nine, earth and water are all etc., and B thirty two the rainbow fragment, as relevant parallels for making sense of Parmenides' is of explanatory identity. My subsequent studies of Xenophanes have convinced me not only that in Xenophanes' physics and astro we have uh, such samples, but also that in the same context we have clear evidence of the fundamental conceptual affinity at this early stage of philosophy between the scheme X is in reality Y, explanatory identity, and the Ionian scheme X came to be from Y. And in handout 10, you see in this play, first in part part A of the handout, the relevant texts with the verbatim citations from the poetry or testimonia that give clearest instances of his project of physicalizing or deanthropicizing celestial phenomena. Now we are at H10 in part A of the handout. I'm not going to read it, I just point to it, and I hope you can glance at it. In part B of the handout, H10, I am to show that in the context of an Afanian astrometeorology even the dynamic or more properly Ionian scheme of of X came to B from Y is very close semantically to the is of explanatory identity. I ask you to pay attention to the three items uh, uh, to which I have added stars. So Moving on, the audiences of this rhapsode and physicalizing cosmologist will have heard Anopheles recite, Nefos kaituto perfike, this too is his nature cloud, as a refrain, one that tended to assume the character of a slogan. Given what we know of Parmenides' interest, it is not far fetched that he ruminated of well, the many uses of the explanatory is, in is Zanofnitz's project along lines as follows. Why earth and water? Why just water? Why cloud formations? If on the subject side of the is, what we today would call the explanandum, we have something manifest and familiar, why should we not on the other side? What we would call the explanans if something even strikingly different, and profound. What are the criteria for real or metaphysically fundamental or ultimate what is? (coughs) Pervasively important in Xenophanes, as we saw earlier, is the thematic antithesis between limit and unlimited ranges. In Parmenides, it is the limit side of the antithesis that has problems. Among the properties deduced for what is in the central argument of B8, are three that involve derivatives of the verb, telee, uk not incomplete. Ateles not to be yet completed, or not subject to completion. Eteles complete. Moreover, we're repeatedly told that what is, is to be found within, or even tightly held within, peirata, limits, balance pedi bonds shackles, but the unlimited, as I'm about to show, far from being absent from the poem, in fact plays a major role as foil to the theme of peradventure. Indeed, it is the target of the allegorist in the overall argument. Of special interest is the disparaging way in which Parmenides speaks of do me on." The thing which supposedly get is not in B two six to eight. And now we are at handout H eleven and again I'm not reading it, just pointing to it. Later uh, in the same main fragment, VH seventeen to eighteen, we're reminded that the what is not, or more precisely, is its cognitive root of inquiry, is to be let go, as unknown, unthinkable, un- inconceivable, not graspable, also as anonymous, nameless, not nameable, and indeed that the hodos, the root or path with which it is associated is not a true root, hodos. The usual explanation, especially among advocates of the Vulgate, for these affirmed impossibilities and strongly urged injunctions, is that Parmenides subscribes to the preferential theory of meaning. All words function as names of things. And in the case of non existent things, words that purport to refer to them have no meaning. An obvious oddity of the referential theory is that meaning and sense should be at the mercy of vicissitudes in the external world. Accordingly, if a particular named object is for whatever reason wiped out from the universe, then the word by which it was known supposedly also loses its meaning. But Parmenides people have a different, more inherently linguistic reasons for objecting to the language of what is not. Between the second and the third, of the first set of alleged possibilities, the ones to which I have assigned Roman numbers in, in handout page one. A fourth one intervenes in the text at B2, line seven. Ugar aniston, Worth special notice is that the tos verbal adjective, aniston, is framed by two immediately contiguous perfective in the terminology of verb aspect, two perfective forms, namely the aorist optatives, gnōyes should get to know, should succeed in knowing, and frazeis, should succeed in singling out. The choice of aorist, perfective verb aspect, indicates that what is at issue are mental acts, respectively, of cognition, gnōyes and of directing one's attention, frazeis, that, meet criteria on determinacy and closure. As a result of this framing of aniston, the toss adjective evokes and brings to the fore the inherent meaning of the verb anio, from which the cognate verbal verbal adjective aniston is derived. Inherently, aneu is an achievement or accomplishment verb, standardly conveying the sense of words such as I complete, I fulfill, I conclude, consummate or perfect. What Parmenides finds objectionable in is not discourse is a fault that arises strictly within language, not absence of a denotation in the external world, but rather lack of definiteness, failure or determinacy in the words themselves. In short, For Parmenides, the language of is not fails because of its vagueness. By negating the TOS adjective that derives from annuios, Parmenides intends to convey that in using the language of is not, the mental act at issue of cognition in the first case and of attendance or attention in the second, (coughs) fail to be completed, fail to have the sharpness Determinacy and closure that is required for such acts. Other than the hapless mortals of Parmenides' toxa, are there perhaps some actual thinkers among Parmenides' contemporaries or predecessors against whom the charge of semantic indeterminacy can be made to stick? Xenophanes, I submit, would be a very good candidate. Yes, the one cosmic limit and the supreme deity offer cases of indisputable determinacy. Other cases of determinacy can be obtained by pending reference points and measures, for example, at the narrowest width of the, Pythag- of the Peloponnese isthmus, or a trench that is 10 kalaboi deep from the Earth's surface. But given Xenophonus' metaphysical and epistemological comparativism, the vast majority of expressions we employ in describing the world are infinitely vague. For example, deep, high, fast, slow, bright, dark, to the west, sweet, wise, good, and so on at infinitum. Moreover, and crucially so, in a comparison between the doctrines of Xenopheles and Parmenides, adding the negation particle to any of the words mentioned above aggravates the vagueness enormously vague and indefinite as sweet is there is even greater indefiniteness in the not sweet for once we add for once we add the particle of negation the negated phrase points us to something that spans not only across all the many varieties of the bitter but also all the varieties of the insipid and of the tasteless and perhaps as promoters of the Vulgate specially recognized, of the other than sweet as well. As we refine our understanding of Parmenus's rejection of the language of what is not and of is not, that it emerges that in the thematic antithesis of limit against unlimited, the connection between the older emigrant Magna Graecia and the latter region's younger native. A more famous metaphysician is historically significant. In the case of Xenophanes, the antithesis is pervasive in his metaphysical and epistemological scheme. In the case of Parmenides, it involves the fundamental, object, the fundamental objection against the language of his not, the very objection that drives Parmenides' entire metaphysical project. I'm sorry that my throat condition slows me down even more than I expected, but just a moment. The Parmenidean demands on the nature of what is, four by one count, five by another, taken together are so stringent that it's difficult to select a pre-Socratic figure whose philosophy meets all of them. Especially refractory are two demands, absolute indivisibility and completeness. With respect to indivisibility, the atomists, for example, must settle for only physical indivisibility. The demand for completeness excludes any entity, the conception of which involves dynamic or dispositional properties, what in Aristotle would be powers and potentialities. A quite special philosophical entity, one that amplifies, sorry, one that amply meets the Parmenidean criteria, does emerge in ancient Greek philosophy more than one century later, Aristotle's God. Very little commentary or adaptation is needed to show that Aristotle's unmoved mover meets all five of the criteria posited for Parmenides' To on what is. Apart from the remarkable affinity between Parmenides' What Is and Aristotle's Unmoved Mover, in which we look in particular for a theological conception that prefigures Aristotle's Unmoved Mover, Xenophanes' Supreme Deity has a strong claim for meriting consideration, and yet does so quite independently of the Iliotizing of the latter. The core idea of an entity that moves other things without itself exercising any motion is really revolutionary. And that core is found first in Xenophanes and again in Aristotle. It's a case of historical irony and also great pity that Aristotle himself failing to appreciate the connection dismissed Xenophanes as agroikos, an uncouth rustic, not sophisticated. We're very close to the conclusion. We're now in a position to contemplate a reverse a rapprochement. not one that heliotizes or permenidizes Xenophanes, uh, but rather one which by seeking a better appreciation of the older philosopher, enhances our understanding of the younger philosopher as well. The emigrant from Colophon to the Greek, to the Greek West in his long life became a fierce critic of all forms of self-projection, vanity, and self flattery. Significantly, he judged that there was vanity and anthropism in the first sentence in the way Greeks and non-Greeks project human modes of agency and behavior upon the supposed divinities that were widely associated with astronomical and meteorological phenomena. He boldly theorized that all super terrestrial phenomena can be explained in purely physical terms. They involved a grand variety of cloud types and of quivering motions, some of an endogenous special kind, some exogenous is from the computer. Moreover, going beyond this uh, reductive physicalism, he also theorized that all motion in the world is ultimately imparted in some uniquely direct way by supreme divinity, while that divinity itself remains absolutely unmoving. Consistently with his radical critique of traditional notions among gods, he insisted on purging the supreme divinity of human like features. With the notable exception of its having, or better put, of its being, a mind that possesses noem- noemata, awareness perception's thoughts. As we saw earlier in my review of the philosophy, this divine mode of awareness is omnidirectional, omnispatial, omnitemporal. In short, a holistic mode of awareness, radically unlike the different forms of perception humans experience. Despite its mention of mind and mental awareness, and despite of the hint of mental causation or psychokinesis, the Xenophonian conception of the supreme divinity is arresting, revisionary, paradoxical, and even revolutionary in its avoidance of anthropist bias. In the younger intellect and native son of Magna Grecia, Almendes, we find a correspondingly mind bending and revolutionary conception. Applied this term not to a supreme divinity, but rather more broadly and abstractly to fundamental or ultimate reality. to what is? To be sure, the opposition to anthropic bias is not as openly proclaimed in Parmenides as in the but there are recurrent hints of it. In the assurance Parmenides' goddess gives to her initiate that he has been taken to a road that, quote, lies far from the beaten track of men, the twenty seven also in the contrast between truth and the views of brontoi mortals with frequent disparagement of the latter views and even in the compositional device of a veritable veritable throne of anthropomorphic deities in the poem with a quite manifest invitation to hearers and readers To interpret these figures symbolically. Beyond all this, we have the astonishing circumstance that of all constructs in early and classical philosophy, it is in Aristotle's unmoved mover, eminently a product of critique of anthropist bias, that we have an entity that fulfills best the Parmenidean criteria of what is. In the entire history of ideas, We have a long succession of philosophical schemes that uphold the peculiarly human way of perceiving things. In pre-classical antiquity, Protagoras and the Sophists gained fame by advocating and even aggressively promoting anthropism. In the Hellenistic period and in later antiquity, the skeptics are ideologically akin to the fifth century Sophists. With the remarkable one exception of Aristotle's doctrine, of the unmoved mover, even Aristotle and before him Plato, and in later times the Stoics, show anthropic bias inasmuch as they make the intuitively familiar paradigm of making, whether a proposed word process generally or specifically in reference to a divine craft, central in their schemes. In modern times, the peculiar human way of experiencing the world is accepted and explored in empiricism pragmatism, conventionalism, phenomenalism, modern scepticism. Through much of the history of modern science, there was no difficulty in making scientific advances advances within the framework of standard human perception, extending the latter by the ever progressive development of germane scientific instruments. Moreover, in its theoretical or postulational constructions, science would easily draw and easily exploit suggestive analogies drawn from the framework of standard human perception. For example, conceiving of an atom as consisting of a nucleus surrounded by associated electrons by analogy with fixed star and satellites. But starting in the 20th century and continuing to the 21st, the scientific or postulational image of the world is revealed by progress in physics, astrophysics and cosmology, has found it compelling and even unavoidable to introduce theoretical constructs that court paradox as they break away decidedly from the comforting familiarities of standard human perception. Well, at the remote ancient Greek beginning of this long historical process, Xenophanes' conception of the supreme deity and Parmenides' austere and mind-bending conception of what is all to be viewed as prophetic of today's and of the future's yet more advanced versions of the scientific or postulational image of the world. Thank you very much.